I'm going to equip you. I'm going to do my part, but there's still a lot of work for you to do as well. And, and I find with a lot of Christians, you know, especially in business, is that, you know, they don't do their part. You know, they rely on Jesus to do everything. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Thanks so much for listening. On this show, we dismantle or take apart an issue that poses to be problematic for the church by having a dialogue with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you are new to the show, we won't always agree, but we won't argue because our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing views in a way that builds bridges, but not barriers. Our guest today is Remy Adeleke. Remy is a dad and husband, a model, public speaker, and former Navy SEAL. He is an actor from the film Transformers, The Last Night, as well as an author. Remy, welcome to The Dismantle. Hey, thank you for having me, Joey. I appreciate, appreciate you having me on. I am so excited that we got to connect, man. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Remy, before we get started with our episode today, how did you get introduced to church, to faith? What's some of your spiritual background? Well, uh, my mom, she was uh, she would take us to a Baptist church when we were young um, in, in Harlem called Covenant Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, my grandmother would attend with us at times as well. She went to a different church that we would also visit sometimes. But uh, Common Avenue Baptist Church, that's where kind of I was introduced to, to, to Christianity, I would say. Um, I hated it <laughs> uh, with a passion um, for a few reasons. Um, uh, and, and, and ultimately, I think those reasons are, are what uh, eventually led me completely away from any idea of, of faith. Obviously, within that sentence, there's sort of a... Uh an implication that there's been a journey within your spiritual journey. Would you say that that's true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I have for a long period of time. I, I fluctuated between um, atheism and uh, atheism and agnosticism for a long, long period of time um, until until 26, when I finally hit rock bottom. And, you know, my brother, he was a Christian and uh, he would he told me many times uh, for over the course of years, because I used to make fun of him for being a Christian. And uh, he would tell me, he's like, when you hit rock bottom, because it's going to happen because I'm praying for you, you know, just remember that uh, remember to call out to Jesus. And so when I did uh, hit rock bottom in, in 2008, that's when, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to give this Jesus a try. And, uh, you know, I, I cried out to him. I prayed and, and you know, uh, I began to see transformation, spiritual transformation take place in my life. Um, and, and, and I just began to witness like just amazing miracles, just amazing things happen, things that cannot be explained. Um, just in human terms. And so um, uh, that's when I really began to grow my faith. And, uh, and that was 2008, 2000, and we're 2019 uh, now. So I've been, I've been, I've been a Christian for, for 11 years. And uh, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. That's really cool, Remy. And thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. So Remy, diving into your story a little bit, you're not originally from the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and some of that story? Yeah, so my dad, he uh, he was a well-known Nigerian engineer, um, uh, as well as an entrepreneur, businessman, philanthropist, and and because of his success as an engineer and a businessman, we were really really wealthy. Um, so we lived a life of luxury. Uh, we we lived in Africa, but we traveled all over the world. We had nannies, we had cooks, we had drivers. We lived on a compound. We had security guards. I mean, we had it all. Um, and, and and my dad, um, he uh, he created one of the first man-made islands in the world that exists to this day. And it's known as Banana Island. Uh, and he had invested millions and millions of dollars into this property. And right before um, 
right after the the, the the land had been fully developed, um, the Nigerian government decided you can't have this anymore. This doesn't belong to you. Um, and they took it from him. And uh, uh, and he had, again, he had poured everything into it. So much so that my mom, she would tell him, you know, bio, you need to put money into the States. You need to, I mean, just, just put 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 in the United States in a bank there because if something happens here and we lose everything, we're not going to have anything. And my dad would tell my mom, and you know, I kind of shared this in my book, but my, my dad would tell my mom, my priority is Nigeria. My priority is my people first um, because he had this vision uh, of Nigeria being a, a beacon for all of Africa, you know, a beacon of success, a beacon of business and, and for, you know, a, a proper business, successful business and, and other things. And so um, my dad would tell my mom, nope, I'm not going to do that until the banana island has been fully developed. And once we're, we're recouping all of the money from this investment, then I'll put money into the States. So when the Nigerian government took that asset from him, um, he died and he died like a few days later uh, while fighting them. You know, we went from rich, having absolutely everything to poor. And my mom being an American, because she met my dad in the United States and then moved to Nigeria with him. Um, she said, there's no way I'm raising my kids here. So she permanently uh, relocated my brother and I to, to New York City. Now, you mentioned in the book that you moved to the Bronx. Did you have any culture shock or struggle adjusting to New York City? Um, no, uh, for a few reasons. One, we would travel a lot back and forth, you know, as, as I got older, uh, from Nigeria to the United States, you know, vacation and stuff like that. So that, you know, so it wasn't much of a culture shock from that perspective. And two, um, my mom did a fantastic job at, um, at shielding us from the reality of, of, of what was going on. As a matter of fact, I remember the day that my dad died. My mom placed my brother on her right side and placed me on her left side. And this is red couch. I'll never forget it. And she said, your father, your father's dead. He's not coming back. And, you know, she said in a very caring, loving way. But because she wasn't crying and because she wasn't hysterical um, and because we were so young and didn't really know what death meant, we just went back to playing, you know, like nothing happened because we didn't fully understand it. But again, a big part of that was the way my mom delivered the news uh, in such a comforting, like everything's going to be OK type of way. And so, uh, you know, that's the way she handled a lot of things in our life. You know, she handled things, you know, by, she, she guarded us really, really well. Um, but it wasn't until I got older, uh, until I was about eight years old, that I really began to realize the different life that we had and, and, and the lack that we experienced. And, and that, that's when it really hit me hard. Now, statistics tell us that African-American males who grow up in a single-parent household are nine times more likely to drop out of high school and 20 times more likely to end up in prison than any other demographic, which is staggering to me. Uh, you mentioned in the book that there were some illegal activities that threatened to derail your future. Yeah. With as much transparency as you prefer to go into, uh, can you share some of that with us? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, I'll kind of try and you know, give the spoiler free version. Um, so when people read the book, <laughs> they have the full version. But I got into, uh, I started out selling drugs, um, you know, um, you know, and I was making really good money doing that. Um, and me, and me and a buddy I grew up with, we, we would sell drugs in upstate New York. And, uh, and, and that wasn't enough for me. I mean, it was, it was good money, but the risk was, was too high. Um, and so, uh, I transitioned into high level scams, like really, really high level scams. And, that, and the high level scam that I got involved in was, was, was the cell phone scam. 
um, and I won't go into all the details, I'll leave it for the reader, but to find out, but I got into the cell phone scam where I was essentially bringing in thousands and thousands of dollars a week. Um, it was so easy, it was such easy money and because of, of the way the, um, because of how under, under, um, watched, I would say the word is, uh, under supervised the, the, you know, the cell phone market was at the time because cell phones were brand new, I was able to get away with any, any, everything. Um, and so, so yeah, that's what I found myself into. And, and there were people, um, who were doing what I was doing and they were, they were getting caught and going to federal prison, um, for what I was doing. Um, but you know, by the grace of God, I didn't get caught. Um, so yeah. Now, fast forwarding a bit in your story, what drew you to the Navy? Um, I had nothing left. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's more to the story, um, uh, and you'll find out when you read the book. But essentially, I had nothing left. I, you know, I, you know, I, I was doing nothing with my life. I had failed at, 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 at you know, the stuff that I was doing, the music industry stuff I was trying to get into, and I just literally had nothing left. And so that's that's why I was just like I didn't join the Navy out of patriotism at the time. I didn't join the Navy because I was you know trying to go to war because nine eleven just happened. I just joined the Navy because I needed I needed a, a change of course or I was going to end up dead in prison. So that's essentially what led me in, in, into the Navy was you know it was more of a survival thing. <laughs> you know if I want to survive and, and thrive, I need to change my situation and and, and I did it. And I'm gonna tell you you know the, the, the Navy was you know up there with with, with one of the best things that. Had, that ever happened to my life. If it wasn't for the Navy, like literally I would not be here today at all. Like that just one decision of joining the Navy just changed the trajectory of my life, you know, because it was through the Navy that I was able to, you know, get into special forces. It was through the Navy that I met my wife, it was through the Navy that, you know, that, you know, I was able to get my education, go to college, get my master's, all of these things that, you know, the Navy provided for me. So yeah, it was, it was, it was the, one of the best decisions I ever made. Hmm. Now, like you sort of just mentioned, you hold various degrees from the University of Charleston. The Navy is in your rearview mirror. You're now acting, three kids, wife. D did you ever think that the odds that you were facing at the time would lead you to where you are now? No, no, um, I never. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, I, I was having an interview yesterday. I was talking to a guy and I was just like, man, like my, the way my life is, is, is like I live an unexpected life. Like what I I never plan on doing, you know, just comes my way with, with, you know, without me even, without me ever even considering doing, you know, for example, acting, you know, I was, I was in grad school at the time, finishing up my master's in organizational strategy and uh, my phone rings and it's this lady on the other line and she works for Michael Bay and she's just like, Michael Bay's looking for an African-American seal to be in a movie. It's called Transformers, The Last Night. I'm just like, okay, what do you want me to do? She says, send me some pictures. And I'll send show it to him. And if he likes your pictures, you know, he'll pick you. I sent her pictures the next day I was in a movie. <laughs> and it was just supposed to be one day, one day turning it into uh, into three weeks, three weeks turning me being on the film for like six months. You know, so, you know, I, but that was unexpected. You know, uh, I was not trying to be an actor at all. And then, you know, from being in a project like that, that just opens up more doors, you know. So I got commercial work from, that, from being in, in that project. I signed an endorsement deal with Jockey. I got my writing deal with, with HarperCollins Publishing for my book. Just all of these things came from that. And, and um, 
and even the whole book thing, like I was not trying to write a book at all. I had no intentions of writing a book. And I went on a Today Show to promote, you know, Transformers during the press tour. And Kathleen Gifford says on air, you need to write a book. Your story is super inspiring and your book needs to be turned into a movie. And then when we get on set, she pulls me aside and she says, I'm serious. Like, you really do need to write a book. And I told her no. And, and she said, why? And I explained to her why, you know, and then she said, you know, Remy, like, it's not about you, you know, it's about who you can inspire with your story. And she essentially walked me to a publisher that signed me to a book deal. So, um, and then, and then the story, you know, continues on and on. I got into screenplay writing and I wrote my first film. Um, just, you know, after I wrote my book, I was just like, you know what, I, I'm love, I'm loving this writing thing. I'm loving storytelling. And, uh, and I was like, you know, I'm gonna try writing my first film. I wrote my first film and I sent it out to a few friends in the industry and, and the feedback all came back, you know, A plus. And then I sent it to a buddy, to, to a company called Zero Gravity, which is a management company and production company. And they produced Ozark and, and the Accountant and a bunch of other stuff. And they read it and they loved it. And they signed me to a tour as a, as a writer. And uh, now that that film that I wrote is now going to market. And, and we're getting ready to have major studios and production companies, you know, uh, go to war for it. So it's like, again, that, that's just, that's been my life. You know, I've just, you know, it's unexpected. Now, you sort of alluded to this before in your introduction, but was there any sort of church presence around you as you were going through these difficult times, whether it was around in the Navy or uh, moving to the States? What, was there any sort of uh, spiritual institution in your life? Um, it, you know, again, when I was young, my mom, again, she would take us to this Baptist church and and, you know, we would pray at home and my grandmother would pray and she would sing gospel hymns at, at home. Um, um, so that was I would say that that was probably the uh, the foundation. You know, I, I began to learn writing. I remember, I'll never forget it. My, my grandmother, this is, this is actually literally this is the first memory, living memory I ever have. Like, I can't remember anything past this, really. But I must have been about four years old and uh, or three or something like that. But this is my first memory of my grandmother. Um, there was Listerine. In the, uh, in the in the in the uh, bathroom, and I just loved the color of the listerine. It was like the blue listerine, and I just wanted to taste it because it reminded me of Kool Aid. And uh, I begged my grandmother, Grandma, could I taste it? And she said, No, you can't taste it because if you taste it, you're going to drink it, and you can't drink listerine. And I said, Grandma, I promise I won't drink it. I won't drink it. And my brother, the same thing, like he was standing right next to me, and she said, Okay. And she gave me my brother small little cups of Listerine to, you know, to taste and spit back out. And, and then she walked away. And my brother, you know, he spit it out being an obedient one all the time. <laughs> but uh, I swallowed mine. <laughs> and she came back and she said, she asked me, because she didn't, she heard my brother spit, but she didn't hear a second person spit. So she asked me, she said, Remy, did you, did you spit out the Listerine? And I said, yes, Grandma. She said, you sure you didn't swallow? I said, yes, Grandma. She said, are you lying to me? I said, no, she said, because you know people who lie go to hell. <laughs> and literally, that's my first life memory. I'll never forget that. That was the first memory I could ever recall. And uh, that was my introduction to, to heaven and hell. <laughs> you know, if you lie, you go to hell. So, uh, so you know, I did get those principles along the way um, um, from my family and from my mom. But again, you know, I was just so turned off by the church, especially at a young age, because I saw so much hypocrisy in the church. Um, I, even at a young age, you know, kids can sniff things out. Sniff, sniff, kid, kids are more intuitive, I think, at times than adults. 
And, you know, I just remember going to the Baptist church and, and, and seeing people hoop and holler and, and sing and this and that. But then, you know, five minutes later, uh, somebody come in, comes in to sit down and there's an argument about, hey, this is my seat, you know, or people talking behind each other's back. Or you was just, I just saw so much hypocrisy in the church where I was just like, just Jesus can't be real. Christianity can't be real. Like this thing is all far. So, um, so my foundations, my foundation in, in Christianity was built to, in two ways. It was, it was built one way. I did kind of learn some principles, primarily, you know, right and wrong, good and bad, there's consequences for actions type thing. But then, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was set in a, in a separate way where, you know, I didn't believe, you know, I couldn't believe uh, that the represent, representatives of this faith could act in such a way. And if the representatives of this faith act a certain way, then this religion can't be real and everything about it is fake. Um, so that was my early years, but again, you know, as I got older, I, I completely stayed away from it. Um, uh, my mom couldn't make me go to church anymore, especially when I became a teenager and then fast forward to, to the military, you know, I was completely on my own, never went to church, never had a desire to. And then, um, as a matter of fact, I, just, I remember in boot camp when we got a dog tag, right before we got a dog tag issue, they asked us, you know, what do you want on your dog tags? You know, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever. And I picked no religious preference. So my dog tag said no R-E-G-P-R-E-F, you know, no religious preference. And uh, that's the way I was pretty much, you know, good good chunk of my career in the Navy. Uh, until, you know, I, I met this guy in the Navy who was, he wasn't a Christian. He was more of a Zen Buddhist. And he said, well, I don't even want to call him Zen Buddhist. He just studied a lot of Eastern philosophies and religions. And he was really big into meditation. And what attracted me to him was he was always so peaceful, no matter what the situation was, whether there was chaos, whether everything was going okay, he just always to be at, always seemed to be at peace. And so I was intrigued by that. So, you know, I, I approached him one day and I said, what is it with you? And he, he began to explain to me his practices, you know, how he meditated and, and you know, you know, the way of the warrior and, you know, all of these Eastern practices, practices. And, you know, that's what kind of opened my eyes and heart a little bit to the idea of faith. And I started studying, you know, uh, Eastern philosophies with him and he began to teach me. And then when I got back from that deployment, I started going to like, it wasn't a church, but it was like a gathering where all of these uh, people who studied the Eastern philosophies and religions got together, meditated together, talked about life, talked about chi and you know, all these other things. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, later, after, you know, after I hit rock bottom and the, you know, the meditating thing wasn't working for me anymore, you know, when I was at the bottom and, you know, and, and all the other things that this teacher had taught me wasn't working for me. I still, you know, felt great pain. That's when I finally, you know, really capitulated and turned to faith. And there was a girl at the same time as well who um, I was dating and she was into the church. So, you know, and I would only go to church because, you know, I wanted to be with her. I wanted to be, my, and, but I, and I only went a few times, but, you know, between that guy, this girl, and me hitting rock bottom, that's, that was the catalyst for me, you know, saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to try this Jesus, you know. It's hmm. powerful, Remy. And uh, as we kind of wrap up our time, what's something that you think the church needs to hear from someone in your position? Um, maybe it's about going through a difficult situation or, or maybe just something that you're observing from your point of view. Oh, wow. There's a lot of things. <laughs> You're not limited uh, to just one. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, one is, uh, the first one I would just say, you know, we're not going to be perfect. You know, that's just the reality of it. You know, it's just because we're Christians doesn't, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. Um, but we have to strive for perfection. You know, we have to strive to, to walk in a way that Christ has called us to walk. And he understands, you know, 
if we make a mistake, if we fall, but we have to strive towards that perfection, right? So that's the first thing I want to say to, you know, the church is, you know, strive towards it, you know, um, don't live in hypocrisy. And so often we, we equate hypocrisy to uh, somebody who sinned. Not just that, like, it's, it's, it's what you don't do, you know, it's, it's not loving your neighbor, you know, it's, it's not, you know, uh, loving that person that you don't agree with. It's being so invested in, our, in, in, in politics that the politics have become more of your religion than your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I see that so much and it's very frustrating because it just it just gives the church a, a black eye, you know. Um, so that'd be the first thing. The second thing, you know, is, you know, do do what you're called to do with excellence. You know, I, I, work, I come across a lot of Christians in business uh, in life in general, who are unprofessional, who, you know, they're, they're they, you know, they, they just have the sense, let's just pray and, and that God works it out and not do our part. You know, um, a scripture that I love in the Bible and I always, you know, reference when I have this conversation is when Moses was on the top of the mountain and the Israelites were fighting the Malachites, I believe, down in the valley. And uh, God said to Moses, as long as you keep the staff of God raised, you know, the, the Israelites will win the battle. But as you, if you drop the, your, your staff, the Israelites will lose the battle. And what I love about that scripture, it just shows how much God partners with us. You know, God says, you know, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to do my part. But there's still a lot of work for you to do as well. And, and I find with a lot of Christians, you know, especially in businesses that, you know, they don't do their part. You know, they rely on Jesus to do everything. Or if they do their part, you know, they don't do excellence. You know, and the Bible talks about that. You know, whatever, you know, whatever your hand finds to do, do all your might. It doesn't say do it with some of your might. It doesn't say do it with a little bit of your might. It says do it with all your might, you know, and um, that's the principle that we're taught in the SEAL teams. Like it really is, you know, in the SEAL teams, they teach you, you know, here's a standard, but you don't, we as SEALs don't just do the standard. We punch through the standard and we go above and beyond. Like that's the big, big thing in the SEAL teams. Like it's, it's, you can't just check a box, you know, and, and buds, we have to run the O course um, once a week. And, and, and if you if you if your score for running the old course the first week is eight minutes, the next week and, and a passing time is, is, is nine minutes. The next week, if you if you do eight minutes, you get hammered. Like all the guys who, who, who just meet the time, who don't beat their previous time, they get hammered. They get punished big time. And the reason why is because instructors are like, no, you are to do you are to do everything with excellence, you're to challenge yourself. If you did eight minutes, you better do 759 at a minimum the next time you run this old course. Um, so, you know, that's something that, that the church needs to do more. The church needs to be, has, they have to communicate professionally, you know, uh, 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 do conduct business practices uh, professionally. Don't be so emotionally wrapped up that your emotions are dictating how business should be run versus your professionalism, you know, and so, um, yeah, that's that's just something that's been on my heart a lot lately. It's just just important to do it. And you're going to make mistakes. Right. People are going to be not, not, not expecting Christians to be perfect. But, you know, just again, just like we have to strive for obedience and doing what God calls us to do um, as it relates to our neighbor. We have to do the same thing because we're a representation of Christ in this earth. You know, so 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 if, if, if you know, people are attracted to other people who do well. Right. So, so, you know, and, and that's it's the same way in the SEAL teams It's the same way in sports. Steph Curry, you know, he's a great example of that. You know, he's a Christian. Right. And, 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 and he's excellent in what he does. And people are attracted to him and his faith because of his excellence. Right. So 
Um, so yeah, I know I went on a tangent, but you know, that's something I'm really passionate about that I'm, I'm really pushing for, for the church is to do whatever it is that God called you to do with excellence, professionalism, communicate effectively, you know, be on time, be a team player, um, um, you know, and all those other things that come with a business. That's a great word, Remy. Thank you. And, and thanks so much for making the time to be on the show, man. Uh, where can, where can people connect with you and how can they get a hold of the book? Yeah, so you can connect with me. I'm on um, um, every social media platform, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, though I don't use it much, and uh, LinkedIn. So if you just type in Remy Adeleke, A-D-E-L-E-K-E, it's, it's the same handle for every social media platform. I was blessed <laughs> with a unique name because I have a unique name. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have to be Remy Adeleke, one, two, three, four, five, or something else, or the real Remy Adeleke. It's just Remy Adeleke. <laughs> um, so you can find me there. Um, the book, you can pre-order the book now on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, or barnesandnobles.com. Um, and if you pre-order the book now, there's only a week left. Uh, there's only a week left of pre-orders because the book comes out next week. But if you pre-order the book now, you will get access to exclusive video stories that didn't make it into the book. Now, let me clear this up. There are video stories that I am releasing to the general public, but those are mainly teasers. Um, so if you go to my YouTube channel, Transform, the tra if you go to the Transform Book YouTube channel, You'll see about 40 video stories from people I grew up with, guys I sold drugs with, guys I, you know, people I went to SEAL training with. You'll see them uh, being interviewed, sharing stories about me. But there's also 17 exclusive video stories that are only being released to those who pre-order, and there's only one week left. And after that, after after this week, those videos won't be available anymore. So um, go to Amazon pre-order, uh, go to uh, Barnes and Nobles pre-order, go to Bam pre-order, and then um, once you pre-order, uh, go to TransformStory.com, uh, put in your pre-order information, and that's how you can unlock the video, the exclusive video story content. That's awesome, man. And we'll make sure we list all that in the show notes. But again, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, my brother. Thanks for having me on. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic we talked about today, maybe your experience and ways that we can continue to create community. Visit the website at dismantlepod.com. And until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com. <laughs>